Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Welcome to this study of history and eschatology from a full preterist perspective. Last time we finished our study of Paul's resurrection teaching in both of his letters to the Corinthians. We gave a quick overview, the big picture, of the 1 Corinthians 15 text, and then went through it section by section, giving a brief explanation of what Paul was teaching there about the resurrection of the dead and the change of the living. In this session, we begin a new series of studies on the book of Romans. Some of our regular listeners in the past few months have asked me to do a series on Paul's eschatological teaching in his epistle to the Romans. I've wanted to do something like that for several years, so this seems to be the right time and place to do it. Let's ask our Heavenly Father for His blessing on our study together. Our merciful and gracious Lord, whose forgiveness has no limits and whose loving kindness is everlasting. We give all honor and praise and glory to you for choosing us to be your people. We cannot find adequate words to thank you for forgiving us and protecting us and providing for us. We ask for your wisdom and understanding to be poured out in our minds and hearts as we study this letter of your faithful servant Paul to the Jewish and Gentile saints in Rome. May this series of studies refresh our hearts and renew our commitment to offer our lives as willing sacrifices for the advancement of your kingdom on earth for all generations to come, like Apostle Paul did. This we pray in the name of your Son and our Redeemer, Jesus. Amen. Max King and some of his fellow collective body advocates have suggested that The book of Romans contains a lengthy, encoded message about the collective body being covenantally raised out of dead Judaism into the life of the new covenant kingdom. However, after we get into this study of Romans, I think we're going to see that that is not the case at all. And we'll also see why that approach to this book of Paul is, I believe, very misleading and confusing. Paul did not write this book as an encrypted message about a collective body resurrection process, which only preterists in the 20th century could finally decode. He wrote it to real live Christians in the city of Rome, addressing some very real concerns that he had for them. There are no complex hidden meanings embedded in the text here. Paul's message was meant to be easily understood by those first-century saints in Rome, and we will see that very clearly once we get into the study of the text. Before studying any part of Scripture, I have always found it helpful to spend some time up front getting to know the author of the book, his intended audience, and the historical circumstances around which it was written. That procedure has served me very well in my efforts to understand Scripture. There are five key questions that I have found extremely helpful to ask and answer before analyzing any biblical text. 
This is kind of like sharpening the axe before we chop down the tree. We want our axes to be as sharp as possible before we start chopping. Jewish fathers teach their children to ask good questions every day in school. The better the questions, the better the learning. Here are the five questions that have served me very well. Number one, who wrote this book? Number two, to whom was it written? Number three, when was it written? Number four, where was it written? And number five, why was it written? All five of these questions are extremely important, but the fifth one is absolutely critical. If we do not know why a message was written, it will be difficult to understand what the author is saying and what he means by it. Properly answering the why question almost always unlocks the meaning of the passage for us. Since that question is so important to answer, we will spend the bulk of our time in this session answering it. Let's get the other four questions answered first so that we can take an in-depth look at the why question. Question number one, who wrote this epistle to the Romans? Well, we all know that that's Apostle Paul. But what we may not know is who Apostle Paul is and what kind of person he is. What made him think and write the way he did. Paul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, which was a Roman city in southeastern Turkey. Because he was well-born in a Roman city, he had Roman citizenship status. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, which is the same tribe as King Saul. No wonder he's named Saul. His father and other family relatives were evidently Pharisees since he claimed that he was a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. He tells us that he was raised and educated in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 26 verses 1 through 11. His tutor or teacher was one of the most distinguished Pharisaic rabbis of the day, Rabbi Gamaliel the Elder, who was the grandson of Hillel, the most famous Pharisaic rabbi of all. Paul's parents must have been extremely wealthy to afford such a teacher as that. They evidently had a very profitable tent-making business. Unlike Peter and the other apostles, Paul was seminary-trained in Jerusalem by one of the most prestigious rabbis of the day. No wonder he was able to function so well in the public speaking arena, not only in Jerusalem, but Caesarea, Antioch, Cyprus, Ephesus, Athens, Corinth, and Rome. We want to say a little bit more about Paul's teacher, Gamaliel. He was the grandson of Hillel, a distinguished rabbi and high-ranking Sanhedrin council member. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 5, verses 34 through 39, where he argues on behalf of the apostles before the Sanhedrin. He was Paul's teacher, and his statement to the Sanhedrin was made before Paul was converted. Think about this. Luke, who wrote this account in Acts chapter 5, verses 34 through 39, was a traveling companion of Apostle Paul and must have gotten this tidbit of information from Paul. It was certainly written with Paul's full awareness 
and agreement. Now we have to ask what Paul must have thought about this statement of his teacher to the Sanhedrin. We do not know whether Paul was aware of it at the time or whether he heard about it later from the apostles after he had become a Christian. But there is nothing improbable about the suggestion that the young Saul of Tarsus, a student of Gamaliel, was aware of what his famous teacher had said about the Christians before the Sanhedrin. When we see him later obtaining letters from the high priest, Caiaphas, to go to foreign cities and arrest Christians, we have to wonder why he was not following the advice of his teacher, Gamaliel, who advised the Sanhedrin to leave the Christians alone and have nothing to do with them. Surely Gamaliel would not have advised such a course of action against the Christians that Apostle Paul was pursuing at that time before he was a Christian. So why does Paul go against his teacher's advice and follow such a drastic course of action against the church? Could this perhaps be the reason why Jesus, at his conversion, charges Paul with kicking against the goads? by going against the advice of his own teacher, Gamaliel. This must have been at least one of the factors involved in his kicking against the goads that Paul mentioned in his defense before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 14. Well, we also see Paul present at the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. After this stoning of Stephen, the saints were scattered in the persecution that followed. And, of course, the young Saul of Tarsus was there at that stoning of Stephen, and he was guarding the robes of those men who were stoning Stephen. And it was right after that that Paul obtained letters from the high priest to go to foreign cities and bring back the Christians for trial and condemnation there in Jerusalem. And so on that day, a great persecution began against the church, and it was intensified by Paul's activity against the Christians. Well, a couple years later is when we find Saul on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians there. This could have been a little earlier than AD 34, but not any later than that without messing up the chronology that Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. After his conversion there in Damascus, he spent time in Arabia and Tarsus before being summoned to Antioch by Barnabas. It was from Antioch that Barnabas and Paul were sent to do mission work in nearby Cyprus and southeastern Turkey, which included Pisidia and the region of Galatia. The most significant thing about Paul's conversion in Damascus was what Jesus said to Ananias about him in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Jesus said to Ananias, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This refrain about being a chosen instrument to bear his name before the Gentiles was restated to Paul and by Paul repeatedly throughout his 30-year missionary career, as we see in this group of texts that I mentioned here in the lesson outline. I'm not going to read those or deal with them, but they're here in the outline if you'd like to see them. 
numerous times, even here in the book of Romans, in at least four different places, he mentions this mission to the Gentiles. By the time he wrote the epistle to the Romans in AD 58, he was very much aware that this mission to the Gentiles was not just to convert them, but to teach them and graft them into the Jewish olive tree so that they became a part of the true Israel that would inherit the promises made to Israel. He understood clearly what Christ was trying to accomplish through his missionary work. Nothing short of full unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. And it was Paul's focus on fully accomplishing this Gentile mission which shaped the contents of this epistle to the Romans. From first chapter to last chapter, Paul has his eye set on convincing the Jews to accept the Gentiles and convincing the Gentiles to humbly unite with the Jews so that that unity of the faith in a bond of peace might become a reality before the parousia. Paul was consumed and obsessed with completing that mission. And so that helps us understand, I believe, who Paul was and what it was that motivated Paul to accomplish the proclamation of the gospel throughout the whole Roman Empire. Well, the second question we want to deal with is, to whom was the book of Romans written? And of course, in the first chapter, in the first seven verses, it answers that question. It says that it was written to the beloved saints in Rome. And as some of the commentaries note, that phrase, in Rome, is left out of some copies of the book of Romans, suggesting that the book of Romans may have been copied later and sent as a general encyclical to all the churches after it had been sent to Rome originally. And that is a good theory. I think that makes a lot of sense because there is a lot of content in the book of Romans which would have been directly applicable and relevant to all the churches because all the churches had a mixture of Jews and Gentiles in them. And this book of Romans was specifically directed to both Jews and Gentiles to help them unite and become one body in Christ. And so I believe the book was originally written to the saints in Rome, but later was also sent to all the churches. And Paul may have had that general encyclical idea in mind when he wrote it, because the book shows signs of being written originally as a book that might be shared to all the churches, since all the churches had that same problem of Jewish and Gentile conflict and disunity. Well, we have to ask how in the world the church in Rome got established. This is who he's writing the letter to, but how did this church get established? It's obvious that Paul did not establish it, but we don't have any record in the book of Acts of any of the other apostles going there to Rome and establishing the church there. But we do notice in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that it includes Rome in the list of cities and regions from which there were pilgrims present there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. 
Notice it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and heard the gospel preached by Peter and the other apostles. It appears that the church at Rome could trace its origins back to the day of Pentecost, just like the Judean Christians could. Well, here in Romans chapter 16, verse 7, Paul mentions a couple of his kinsmen, Andronicus and Junius, who were already Christians before Apostle Paul was converted. That again implies that they may have been in that group that came from Rome and were there on the day of Pentecost and were converted at that point because Paul was converted around 33 AD. And if these two kinsmen, Andronicus and Junius, were converted before Paul was, that means they had to be converted before 33 AD. And that would be in the neighborhood of the day of Pentecost or not too long after. And since they were in Rome, and there were visitors from Rome on the day of Pentecost, that would make a real good theory. Paul says that these kinsmen in Rome, Andronicus and Junius, had suffered imprisonment just like he had. That's a very interesting statement. That again implies that they had been Christians for quite a while if they had already suffered imprisonment for the sake of Christ. The proper name Junius appears to be a feminine form of the name, suggesting that this was either a husband-wife team, like Priscilla and Aquila, or simply two fleshly relatives of Paul. This raises a lot of interesting speculations. Were these two kinsmen of Paul present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and converted at that time? Since Paul was brought up and educated in Jerusalem and had family there, it is possible that these Jewish kinsmen from Rome may have been in contact with Paul's family there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. This may have provided the young Paul's first exposure to the gospel. This may shed further light on what Jesus meant when he told Paul that he was kicking against the goads. It is like the oxen kicking back against the pointed sticks that the farmer used to prod the oxen to pull the plow. The implication is that Paul may have been resisting the gospel and only injuring himself by persecuting the Christians. We know that his teacher, the Pharisee Rabbi Gamaliel, was familiar with the Christians and advised the Sanhedrin not to kill the apostles. The young man Saul took care of the robes of all the Jewish leaders who stoned Stephen and was in agreement with putting Stephen to death. Right after that, he began ravaging the church and persecuting them. So Paul had exposure to Christianity at least a year or more before he was converted on the road to Damascus. If his kinsmen from Rome were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, he could have had exposure to Christianity right there within his family and acquaintances from the very beginning at Pentecost. This could easily explain why he was so zealously persecuting the Christians, but his resistance was futile. It was like the oxen kicking against the goads. He was only hurting himself by persecuting the Christians. Well, in Romans 16, verse 11, 
Paul mentions another one of his relatives that are there in Rome, Herodion. And in Romans 16, verse 13, he mentions a fellow by the name of Rufus. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans, suggested that Rufus may be the son of Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Christ part of the way to Golgotha. In his footnotes, Douglas Moo says, The Gospel of Mark identifies Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Mark 15, verse 21. Favoring that identification of Rufus here in Romans 16.13 with the son of Simon of Cyrene are a few more commentary writers uh, such as Lightfoot, Godet, Cranfield, and Dunn. And so there's at least five of these commentaries that take the position that the Rufus mentioned here in Romans 16.13 is probably the son of Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Christ to Golgotha. Very interesting theory here, and of course there's some tradition to back that up. The reason we point out all these personal references to individual saints there in Rome is so that we can see that this letter was not just an impersonal encyclical written as a decretal document to be sent to all the churches. It was much more than that. It was written to some very dear saints there in Rome many of whom Apostle Paul knew personally, and some of whom were his own relatives. Knowing this fact helps set the tone for the letter and helps us understand why Paul frames his argumentation the way he does. He was writing to relatives and friends. Some commentaries have noted that Ephesians was not the only epistle of Paul that had some manuscripts which left out the name of the audience to whom it was addressed. Weisler mentions the fact that some copies of Romans also have this same blank spot in the manuscript where the name of the church was normally written in to the text. And this suggests that both Ephesians and Romans may have been widely copied and distributed as general encyclicals to all the churches. Well, that makes a lot of sense, I believe, in view of Paul's earnest and anxious desire to fully graft the Gentiles into the church and get the Jewish Christians to accept them and then use the blessings upon those Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy and thus save as many Jews as possible before the end. As far as we know, there were both circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles in every church, except for maybe Jerusalem. And even there, there may have been a few Gentiles converts. But certainly Jerusalem had a predominant group of Jews there. But here in Rome, it seems like the the tables were turned, and it seems like the Gentiles may have been the dominant group in the church at Rome. And so we see a wide contrast here between the Gentile and Jew components of these two churches. Rome had a dominant Gentile audience, and the church in Jerusalem had a dominant Jewish audience. As far as we know, though, there were both circumcised and uncircumcised Christians in every church. 
even though the percentages of each may have varied very widely from church to church. Jew-Gentile unity was a universal challenge in all of the pre-70 churches. So this would have been a very good epistle to send to all of those churches because all of the churches had a problem maintaining unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, the third question we want to deal with here is when was Romans written? And we know from our studies in chronology in the past on some of our podcasts that Romans was written in 58 AD, near the end of Paul's third missionary journey, while he was staying at Corinth for three months during the winter in preparation for his trip to Jerusalem in the spring to carry the Gentile contributions for the support of the needy saints in Jerusalem. As we learn from Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. Present with him in Corinth were Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, Tertius, Erastus, Quartus, and Phoebe. Phoebe was a deaconess from Sincrea, which was one of the two coastal cities attached to Corinth. Phoebe was leaving soon to carry this epistle to Rome and probably traveled with a group of other Jewish Christians who were going to Rome. Paul was staying at the house of Gaius of Corinth. This is evidently a different Gaius than the one who normally traveled with Paul, who was from Derby. Paul sent his commendations and greetings to Aquila and Priscilla, who were now back in Rome and already had a church meeting in their house. Romans 16, verses 3 and 4. Paul was satisfied that he has established the churches in Macedonia and Achaia and was already planning a trip to Rome and then onward to Spain as soon as he finished his trip to Jerusalem. Paul was anxious to go to Jerusalem with the Gentile contributions, hoping it would accomplish Jewish acceptance of the Gentiles. However, he knew that difficulties awaited him in Jerusalem, but did not know the details. So it was not a big surprise when he was arrested in Jerusalem and sent to Rome for a trial before Nero. Paul may have preferred to follow his original plan to go to Rome and Spain, but Jesus had a better plan that would more effectively finish the work that Jesus had called Paul to accomplish. Five of Paul's epistles had already been written before this epistle to the Romans. This is the last epistle that he wrote before he was arrested in Jerusalem and sent as a prisoner to Rome. While in Rome, he wrote five more epistles. Then after his release and before his second arrest, he wrote the first two epistles to Titus and Timothy. After his second arrest in the late summer or early fall of 63, he wrote his final epistle to Timothy. And in our lesson outline, I have listed all 14 of Paul's epistles and indicated when they were written. And so they're in the order of their writing, and the dates are given after them. Of course, Romans was written in 58 AD, after Paul had already written Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, and First and Second Corinthians. Well, the fourth question that we want to look at briefly is, 
where was the book of Romans written? As we noticed in our previous answer to the number three question, that Paul was in Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey where he wrote this epistle to the Romans just before he traveled to Jerusalem with the Gentile contributions where he was arrested and then sent to Rome. So he did get to go to Rome right after he went to Jerusalem, but it was not under the circumstances that he had anticipated. Well, I want to deal the rest of our time with this fifth question, which is, why was this epistle written? And of course, I believe the the short answer to that is, It was written to promote Jew and Gentile unity. Of course, there are some other reasons why he wrote the epistle, but most of the content in the book can be applied to this real heavy concern that Paul had of establishing Jew and Gentile unity among all the churches. And so, as we get into the book later, we'll notice that a lot of the content is focused on achieving that Jewish and Gentile unity that Paul talks about so much throughout all of his letters, and which we see in the book of Acts, Apostle Paul was working very hard to achieve as well. Well, let's talk about this purpose for the book of Romans a little bit more. From the main content of the epistle of Romans and its flow of argumentation, it appears that Paul was very concerned about achieving the unity of the faith between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. He had just collected the contributions from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia, and in the spring, he would carry those contributions to Jerusalem with the hope that it would be accepted by the Jewish saints there and stimulate them to accept the Gentiles as their fellow heirs of the grace of Christ. But as we see from the book of Romans, not all Gentile Christians were wanting unity with the Jews. So there was arrogance by both the Jewish and Gentile Christians. This epistle challenges the Jews to humble themselves and accept the Gentiles as well as challenges the Gentile saints to recognize their indebtedness to the Jews for their salvation. There was a danger of Paul's efforts toward Jew-Gentile unity failing to be achieved, especially there in Rome. Rome and Jerusalem were polar opposites in that regard. The Jewish saints in Jerusalem were having a hard time accepting the uncircumcised and law-free Gentile Christians as fellow heirs of salvation, while the Gentile dominant saints in Rome thought the Jews had forfeited their rights to the gospel by their unbelief and disobedience and were therefore permanently cast away and excluded from salvation. And so we see opposite problems in Rome and Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it was the Gentiles who were having a hard time being accepted. In Rome, it was the Jews who were having a hard time being accepted. Polar opposites. If these two groups of Christians did not accept each other and unite together, then everything the apostles had worked for would come to nothing. If the Gentiles did not honor the Jewish roots of their salvation, then they were cutting themselves off from the very source of their salvation. 
Likewise, if the Jews kept the salvation all to themselves, then the Gentiles would not be successfully brought into the Jewish church, and Christianity would have remained just a small faction of Judaism, or completely perished when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. So there was a lot at stake here for Apostle Paul especially, as well as all the apostles whose mission to the Gentiles was focused on grafting the Gentiles into the Jewish olive tree so that all Israel, the spiritual Israel, could be saved. The salvation of both Jew and Gentile depended on their acceptance of each other and becoming one body in Christ. It appears that this unity of the faith between the Jews and Gentiles was the most important concern in Paul's mind when he wrote this epistle to the church in Rome. He knew the epistle would be read by both Jews and Gentiles, not only in Rome, but in every church throughout the diaspora. That is why he challenges both Jews and Gentiles to accept one another and become one in Christ. This was a message that both Rome and Jerusalem and everyone between needed to hear at this very time when their arrogance against each other was threatening to permanently destroy their unity and keep the universal kingdom of all nations from being achieved. There are multiple factors involved in the writing of this epistle, including the correction of false teaching by Judaizers, Gentileizers, and other errorists and critics, perhaps even including Barnabas being corrected by Paul's statements here, as we'll notice here shortly. The Judaizers accused Paul of teaching Jewish Christians to abandon their law-keeping, while Gentiles were using Paul's condemnation of the Judaizers to justify their wholesale rejection of all the Jews. Paul defends his gospel and clarifies it in the face of both of these Jewish and Gentile distortions of it. Barnabas may have been one of the influences upon the Gentile Christians there in Rome, urging them to cast aside the arrogant and unbelieving Jews and take the kingdom all to themselves. Paul very effectively demolishes that argument, which the epistle of Barnabas champions. In some places in Romans, it appears that Paul was very much aware of what Barnabas was teaching and was using this letter to the Romans as an opportunity to correct that distortion of the gospel that the Barnabas epistle had within it. One of the interesting facts that I noticed as I read through the book of Acts is that Acts is front-loaded and back-loaded with references to the temple with no references to the temple between chapters 5 and 21. This is significant. It shows that Christianity was very temple-oriented in the beginning. However, starting with the persecution that arose in connection with the martyrdom of Stephen, the disciples scattered away from Jerusalem and into the Gentile world of the diaspora. For the next quarter of a century, there are no references to the temple in Acts until Paul is arrested there in A.D. 58. The church went through a transition from totally Jewish in its beginning to a grafting in of the Gentiles and making them one united church with the Jews. 
By the time the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Gentiles had been fully incorporated into the church so that the demise of temple-based Judaism was of minor consequence to the church. The umbilical cord could then be cut without life-threatening consequences. In the closing chapters of Acts, we see the unbelieving Jews forcing the issue. They had tolerated the church as a sect within Judaism until Paul's missionary efforts began to bring in large numbers of Gentiles. Paul's trip to Jerusalem in AD 58 to bring the Gentile contribution was the beginning of the end for those Jews in Jerusalem who were trying to squelch the Gentile population of the church. The transition was now complete. The Gentiles were in possession of the resources to help the Jews now. Instead of Jews going out from Jerusalem to help the Gentiles, we instead now see here in AD 58 the Gentile Christians coming back to Jerusalem with their contributions to help the Jewish saints. The church was now viable outside of its mother's womb in Jerusalem. The umbilical cord could now be cut, and cut it was in AD 70. In April of AD 58, near the end of his third missionary journey, Paul came to Jerusalem. After writing the book of Romans from Corinth during the winter of AD 58, Paul left on his trip back toward Jerusalem to be there in time for Pentecost, which was in June of 58. He had to move rapidly in order to get back through Macedonia and Asia before sailing to Palestine. He took the contributions from the Gentile churches of Corinth, Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi, and maybe some other churches that we don't know about, back to Jerusalem to be distributed to the needy saints there. By accepting this gift from the Gentiles, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were showing that they accepted the Gentiles as fellow heirs of the kingdom, even though they had not been circumcised and were not keeping the law. It was a way for the Gentiles to share their material wealth with the Jews who had shared their spiritual riches with the Gentiles. This was how Jew-Gentile unity was achieved. The missionary efforts of Apostle Paul were extremely instrumental in grafting the Gentiles into the rich root of the Jewish olive tree so that the fullness of the Gentiles might finally arrive when both Jews and Gentiles inherited the kingdom together at the parousia of Christ. This is a marvelous thing to observe here in Paul's third missionary journey. Paul took great pains to both share the spiritual riches with the Gentiles, as well as take their material wealth back to Jerusalem to share with the Jewish saints. This sharing, or koinonia, of their respective riches blessed both of them and united them together in one common faith. It's worth noting that at this very time when the non-Christian Jews were cutting off all relationships with the Gentiles in preparation for their revolt against Rome, the Jewish Christians were embracing the Gentiles and welcoming them into the kingdom of Christ. What a contrast that is. 
the non-Christian Jews were rejecting all relationships with the Gentiles, while the Jewish Christians were welcoming them into the kingdom. Paul's missionary efforts were the driving force behind this merging of the Gentiles into the one body of Christ. This is exactly what Paul was referring to in Ephesians 4 when he encouraged the Ephesian Christians and all other Christians who would read this epistle to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This was a very real bond of peace. All the friction between the Jewish and Gentile Christians was healed by this mutual sharing that we see displayed here in AD 58 when Paul took those Gentile contributions to Jerusalem. This peace was established by each of them, Jew and Gentile, accepting the other and becoming one in Christ until they all attained to the unity of the faith, to the fullness of Christ as Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 13. This was why the apostles and elders in Jerusalem insisted that Paul remember the poor in Jerusalem when he went on his missionary journeys. And Paul was delighted to raise these funds from the Gentiles since he knew it would seal the deal, establish a bond of peace and unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. They both benefited. They became one body in Christ. The Gentiles were accepted as fellow heirs without circumcision and law-keeping, grafting them into the rich, redemptive root of the Jewish olive tree. It is fascinating to see how Paul's exhortations to accept one another here in Romans were developed further in the book of Ephesians just four years later. Plus, his appeal to the Jewish people in the book of Hebrews to go after the better things in Christ was designed to save the rest of the Jews before the end. Hebrews was designed to make the Jews jealous of the better blessings that the Gentiles were already receiving. After reading the books of Hebrews and Ephesians, which were written four or five years after Romans, it is easy to see what Paul was trying to accomplish in this letter to the Romans. It all revolves around his mission to the Gentiles to fully graft them into the Jewish olive tree and then get the Jewish Christians to accept them. The blessings upon the Gentiles would make the Jews jealous, thus causing some of them to repent and believe and be regrafted into their own native olive tree. That was Paul's goal everywhere he went. Well, in June of 58, Paul arrived in Jerusalem and met with James and all the elders and presented the Gentile contributions to them to be dispensed among the poor there in Jerusalem. Paul related all the wonderful things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Then the elders of the Jerusalem church told Paul that he had been accused of teaching Jews in the diaspora to forsake Moses and not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. This was the very distortion of his gospel that the book of Romans was designed to correct. Therefore, it would seem likely then that Paul shared a copy of his Roman epistle with Peter and the saints there in Jerusalem. This may be one of the epistles of Paul that Peter found hard to understand, 
in which the extremely Jewish church there in Jerusalem found difficult to accept. Well, a brief look again at Ephesians 4, which was written four or five years after Romans, will help us appreciate how important this idea of Jew-Gentile unity really was to Paul. Paul prefaces his remarks here in Ephesians 4 about maintaining unity by reminding them of his imprisonment for the sake of the Lord, who is infinitely worthy of our suffering such shame on his behalf. It is on that basis that Paul appeals to them to tolerate each other in love, since they serve the same Lord who is worthy of our highest efforts. Paul exhorts the Jewish and Gentile Christians there in Ephesus to be diligent to preserve that unity that they had already achieved. This unity was created originally by the work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Torah-free gospel there in Ephesus. Their response to the gospel not only joined them to Christ, but united them with each other. They covenantally bound themselves together to maintain a peaceful relationship The basis for that unity between the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians was the work of God in Christ. Both groups, Jews and Gentiles, are members of the same body, have the same spirit, share the same hope, serve the same Father God and Lord Jesus Christ, believe the same gospel, and were baptized into the same covenantal system of faith. The means of diligently and peacefully maintaining that unity is also clearly described here in Ephesians 4. It's to be maintained by humility, gentleness, patience, and showing tolerance in love. What also impresses me here in Ephesians 4 verses 4 through 6 is the way in which Paul defines the basis for Jew-Gentile unity. Look at what they had in common, koinonia. Both Jews and Gentiles were members of the same body, sharers in the same spirit, having the same hope for everlasting life in heaven above, fellow subjects of the same Lord, holding to the same system of faith, having died with, been buried with, and raised with Christ in the same baptism and worshiping, serving the same God, who is Father of all, over all, through all, and in all. In Ephesians 3, verse 6, Paul talks about the mystery that had been hidden before the ages, and which was now being revealed through his ministry there in the Gentile world. He says in Ephesians 3, verse 6, To be specific, This mystery was that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This was the mystery of the gospel, that Gentiles were now fellow heirs and fellow members and fellow partakers of the gospel without circumcision and law-keeping. This was a challenge for the Jews to accept But it was great news for the Gentiles to hear. Both groups, however, are implored, in the Greek that's parakaleo, to implore or to console or to encourage. So both groups are being 
implored or encouraged or entreated to be diligent to preserve that unity by walking with one another in humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, and love. The Gentiles needed to be grateful for the rich heritage their older brothers in the faith had shared with them when they were adopted into the family of God. And the Jews needed to be humble, patient, tolerant, and loving toward their new adopted brothers in the faith, the Gentiles. It would be a challenge for both groups to get along together and maintain that unity until the purpose of the law was fulfilled and heaven and earth passed away, as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. The Jews needed to be able to keep the law up until 70 A.D. so that they would be a good testimony to their fellow Jews and save as many Jews as they could. After 70 A.D., of course, the law was fulfilled and heaven and earth passed away and the Jew-Gentile conflict was pretty much over at that point because law-keeping and circumcision was a moot issue after 70 A.D. So the Jew-Gentile conflict became a moot issue after the destruction of Jerusalem. The basis for Gentile inclusion in the kingdom had been firmly established already by that time, so that when the temple was removed, it did not destroy the universal kingdom of God, which had already been preached to all the nations and had borne fruit there and established the Gentiles in the church. Well, in conclusion, we need to keep Paul's goal of achieving Jew-Gentile unity in mind as we study the book of Romans. It seems to be the primary concern behind most of the contents of this book. Knowing that this was Paul's most important concern will help us understand why Paul says these particular things to this particular group of people at this particular time and place. And that is the fundamental challenge for anyone who wants to interpret any piece of Scripture. Our challenge is to understand what this author was trying to say to that audience at that particular time and place. And so, knowing that Paul's major concern was to achieve Jew-Gentile unity will help us understand why he writes the epistle to the Romans, in the way he does. And we'll look more at that theme of Romans, Jew-Gentile unity, as we go through the book. We'll notice how his arguments to the Jews and his arguments to the Gentiles are focused on achieving that very unity. Well, in the appendix to this lesson outline, I have included several articles that I wrote for some of my master's degree courses And those articles deal with this very issue of Jew-Gentile unity. That material will further reinforce the comments that we have made here about that issue. And I would encourage all of us to read that extra material if you're not really aware of how big of an issue this really was in the early church. The Jew-Gentile conflict was the biggie in the first century. And so understanding that will help us understand why Paul deals with it so much in all of his epistles and especially here in Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I would encourage all of us to enrich our understanding of the book of Romans by reading it in several different translations. 
That has really helped me get a grip on the argumentation of Paul by seeing how different translations render his argumentation. Become as familiar with the flow of Paul's thinking in Romans as you can. And reading different translations will help you do that. And that will make our studies here on the podcast much more meaningful and productive for all of us. Throughout the course of our studies on Romans, I will mention several commentaries and specialized studies of the book of Romans, which I believe will be very helpful for us. And so if you want to do more study on Romans, I'll mention some of these commentaries for you, and you can get those on the internet by doing a Google search for them and acquire them for your own personal study. And if you know of any commentaries on Romans that I might not be aware of, please send me an email about them. I want to cover all the bases in my study preparation. Well, that pretty much wraps up our study of this session. I hope it's helped us get a grip on what the book of Romans is all about. This theme of Jew-Gentile unity is the biggie that needs to be kept in mind as we look at the book of Romans. If any of this was unclear or confusing to you, don't hesitate to send me an email asking for more information about it. I really want to make sure we have this um, Jew-Gentile unity theme in mind as we begin to look at the text in coming weeks. Well, that will do it for this session. I appreciate your listening, and we'll talk to you next time. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.